We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No mai, whakaronga mai, ki te Aotai Whanua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Sally Murphy. Today we walk through an olive grove on the banks of the Kirikiri River. Just who is the little girl in an old photo sitting above the racks of pint-sized woolies in a Hunterville shop? Our guest tells us more about Molly Mabel and how she's helping to warm up demand for wool. And later we meet a man who has spent half a century restoring a storm-damaged indigenous forest near Tamuka. But first, let's find out what's been happening in the news this week. And Zespri says progress has been made with illegal gold kiwifruit, Sally. That's right. Zespri board advisor Sir John Key met with China's foreign minister Wang Yi this week, where they discussed the illegal plantings. Zespri owns the right to Sun Gold, or G3, but clippings were taken to China back in 2016, and now 8,000 hectares are being grown there. Here's Zespri's head of global public affairs, Michael Fox. There's essentially close to as much gold three plantings. This is the gold kiwifruit variety. There's essentially as much of that in the ground in China as there is in New Zealand. It has been growing over time. And ultimately, it is a threat. The, you know, the way the model succeeds is to build demand ahead of supply and to maintain that balance. And, and that what help, that's what helps us create that ongoing value for growers. And then there is the risk of this overplanting in China, the risk of oversupply, and then the risk of things like getting into our sales channels. Um, so it's an issue which, um, you know, which is here and one which does require um, us to respond to. And legal action's already underway, isn't it? How's that going down in China? Well, Michael Fox says Zespri launched legal action in China a while ago in its effort to address the plantings, and it has support from officials there. Fox says Minister Wang Yi was very understanding and said the matter would be handled according to the law. And Fonterra's announced its long-awaited on-farm emission reduction target. Yes, the dairy giant wants a 30% intensity reduction in on-farm emissions by 2030. And, and just what does that mean, Sally? Well, an intensity target means the focus is on reducing the amount of methane produced per kilogram of milk solids. So it's not an overall reduction in on-farm emissions? No, it's not. And Fonterra expects to achieve this by using best farming practices, adopting new technologies and by offsetting with existing and new vegetation. Federated Farmers Dairy Chair Richard McIntyre says an intensity reduction target makes sense, but it won't be an easy target to meet. Look, it certainly is potentially achievable. One of the biggest sort of unknowns is the, um, the new technology. You know, we've been waiting for new technology to come out to help us, um, you know, in the form of feed additives or vaccines or, or whatever. And, um, you know, we're told it's not far away, but it's still not here. And so that's the unknown. Greenpeace is hit out at the plan. Campaigner Christine Rose says it won't make any meaningful change. This is more greenwashing as we've come to expect from the industry because it doesn't actually reduce emissions and relies on 
fanciful techno fixes which are unproven and a creative accounting of grasses and scattered trees across farms instead of really taking the action required to reduce emissions. And how are East Coast farmers getting on after the heavy rain this week? Well, there's been reports that farmland has slipped and some farms were cut off, but no reports of any major damage. About 130 millimetres of rain fell in 12 hours on Tuesday night, leaving Wairoa cut off in all directions initially. We had a chat to Alan Newton, who farms crops in the area, and he told us the ground was dry and hard, so the rain just bounced off it. He says the local creek got very high, but luckily didn't burst its banks well, we may as well go for a holiday for a couple of weeks and let it dry out. <laughs> so the ground that's cultivated, that's um, quite devastating. For seed that's in the ground, it'll drown, drown recent planting. Plantings that are out of the ground, provided the, um, the water drains away from them, they will probably survive, but it could cause a lot of root damage. So it does have an effect on the yield at the end. Mr Newton says the roads around the district are basically goat tracks, so it's time the government spends some decent money to create a better roading network. And the country's first open ocean fish farm isn't too far away now. No, it's not. King Salmon has got the tick of approval from the Marlborough District Council for the 400-hectare marine farm in the Cook Strait. But now it needs approval from Fisheries New Zealand. So consultation is open to consider if other commercial fishing operations will be adversely impacted by the fish farm. King Salmon Chief Executive Carl Carrington says it would transform aquaculture and also help the company avoid high fish mortality rates, which it's suffered with in recent years. We do prioritise supply to the domestic market, but the New Zealand market's only a certain size, so Blue Endeavour is likely to be mostly targeted at export markets. So in terms of export revenue from that farm alone, potentially $350, $400 million a year. And when do submissions for the plan close, Sally? At the end of this month. Now let's look at meat prices. How's lamb doing? Well, not very good. Schedules have dropped to 2017 levels, with most companies offering around $6.50 a kilo. It's due to Australian lamb flooding the market and softer demand from China. Marlborough farmer Richard Dawkins says people are comparing it to the big downturn back in the 80s. It's very demoralising, to be honest. We're just sorting up our first lot of lambs now. They go to the works on Wednesday, and yeah, we've sort of been indicated it'll be the mid $6 mark. People are starting to compare the current situation to the 80s. Yeah, they were obviously probably the most difficult time New Zealand farmers have faced. And yeah, I guess just the fact we're comparing the two times shows how difficult things are. Richard says his break-even price is around $7 for lamb, so at six fifty, he's losing money. And what about venison? Well, better news, schedules for venison have been holding steady in recent weeks. AgriHQ senior analyst Mal Crowd says base schedules, which are the prices meat companies pay farmers, have barely moved since the start of March. Export values were up $3.10 a kilo to nearly $16 in September on the same time last year. Miss Crowe says this was the highest value for the month since 2019. Export trading has had a more traditional look to it lately. Um, Europe seems to have reclaimed a lot of ground that it lost to the US and China a year ago. Uh, last September the US bought almost half of New Zealand's venison exports, but that slid back to 26% this year. So a relatively good market at the moment for venison. 
And finally, some news about ag programs in schools. They're proving popular. They are. 360 schools are now offering some form of primary sector education and more schools are looking to add agriculture due to increased demand from students. Rex Newman is the principal at Napier Boys High School and president of the Horticulture and Agriculture Teachers Association. And he says he's seen a 20% increase in the past 10 years. He says it's not just rural areas seeing a rise, but urban schools as well. It's basically trying to bridge that gap between those rural and urban sort of areas. And the, the urban has really taken off quite well, especially sort of areas like Christchurch and uh, in Auckland. We're trying to really um, boost those profiles up there. The association's working on finding more teachers as that's been a bit of an issue. Country Life, bringing you the sounds and voices of rural New Zealand. Now to our guest this week, who's based in the Manawatu township of Hunterville. She's behind a homespun brand using traditional skills, local talent and vintage design to clothe babies and toddlers far and wide in snuggly wool. My name's Kelsey Smith and I'm the um, owner of the Hunterville Village Bookshop. And within that space, we house our own little business called Molly Mabel. Molly Mabel uh, was my grandmother. This is when she was a flower girl, so this is the photo of her. Um, How old would she be in that photo? I would think about five. It looks around about the 1920s. She's got almost like a little flapper dress on. She does, doesn't she? Was she a great knitter? She was a great cook, actually. Yeah. No, my mum is the one with the secret talent. So tell us about this label, which is really rather cute. Yeah, so it's um, it's based on being rural and rustic and uh, totally exploiting my mother's talents. So she's a very good um, seamstress and a knitter. And when she uh, retired from her career that she'd had, I said, have I got something to, for you to do? And initially she would have always knitted in pink and blue and lemon and mint. But the basis for the Molly Mabel knitting is definitely around uh, natural, natural wools. And it's, you know, good old country wear. Should we go and have a little closer look? Sure. So, um, you know, it is about the natural fibres and it's about using the wool that's um, come from the land. We might try and source it from local providers. But we also, I scour trade me for people's old homespun stashes. But that helps to keep the price down as well. So describe for us what we're looking at here in the corner of the shop. So uh, the the knitted range uh, for Molly Mabel uh, ranges from newborn and we have gone up to five years now. So that's a little bit to come from pressure of uh, people having bought the Molly Mabel range when they were a smaller size and then the child's grown so they've kind of begged to go a bit bigger and so now we go up to five. So we've also had to um, take on another knitter. So um, all the knitting and the sewing is done by my mum, and who's the daughter of Molly Mabel. And then we've taken on another knitter because this year I've been doing markets. And then I just do all the crochet and any other crafty bits. My mum's based in Fielding, and the other knitter that we've taken on lives in the township of Hunterville. You also have a knitting circle here. Yes, yeah, so if somebody in town wanted to get a little knitting group up and going and so I said use this premise in the winter the fire's going and it's already been heated all day so we've had maybe up to 13 people come uh, once a month 
and it's called Stitch and Yarn. So we've had uh, like kids under 10 right up to women in their 80s. People have learned a new school. They might have learned to crochet if they were a knitter. Uh, they might have been able to share some yarn or some patterns or, you know, a good old-fashioned talking yarn. Um, and it's nice because it's brought a really different group of people together that perhaps wouldn't have connected otherwise. Getting back to these little jerseys, are they very traditional in terms of their pattern? So some of the patterns will have been, I remember my kids wearing them. A lot of them are vintage patterns. And we, we also do the uh, sewing and a lot of those are vintage patterns as well. You know, natural buttons and linen fabrics. We obviously sell to um, locals and they buy them a lot as gifts uh, and a few of them end up overseas. And then we have repeat customers or we have people that will find us actually at markets. I think it um, invokes memories of days gone by um, and they love the en masse uh, look of the natural walls and knitting. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, I remember that pattern. Do you think there's a trend back to wearing natural wools? I think so, and supporting, you know, local and, you know, the farmers and, you know, the wool coming off the land and then people crafting with it. Yeah, and also, you know, reusing items. I think there's a push again for that. What would Molly Mabel have thought of this? <laughs> um, hopefully she would have been really proud. I'm not sure how she would have felt about me forcing her daughter into establishing a business. But, um, no, I think she would have been really proud. And Molly Mabel's with us, you think? Uh, well, possibly. You said you were going to come in and do an interview. And suddenly the photocopy stopped and the music went off. So maybe she was just happily preparing our space. Kelsey Smith in Hunterville in Manawatu. To the far north now, where Leah Tebbit is meeting retired doctor turned olive grower Peter Crowlinston. Peter's olive grove rests on the banks of the Kirikiri River, and it's here he's adding to research about the health benefits of olive oil. I'm greeted by two lovely border collies when I arrive at Peter Crowlinston's Pukiri olive grove, just outside of Kirikiri. It's an overcast day, so we waste no time being outside while it's still dry. Going into the olive grove, so it's very small. We've only got about 180 trees. So we planted the trees on the right. We planted in um, 2011. And the ones on the left, uh, this was all macadamia nut trees. So I eventually got rid of all of them and planted these olive trees here. Um, in 2015, so they're younger, and they're not doing as well. They're not that vigorous. And I think the macadamia nut trees sucked all the nutrients out of the soil. The macadamia roots, they keep shooting up even eight, nine years later. We still get new macadamias shooting up through the ground that You're I have to kidding. cut out. No. So the roots are still alive and I think still sapping the nutrients from the soil so these trees are not as vigorous as they should be but I keep working on the soil I think we'll get there eventually but um, the first one there is, is looking you can see the difference the foliage is a little bit denser there's the odd one that's that's doing better uh, at the far end here you can see that tree there in the corner is also doing better. So the corner's the place to be? I think there's less <laughs> macadamia nut roots there. Yeah. <laughs> right, that makes sense. But I've had the soil tested and so on. 
for uh, all the trace minerals and as well soil biology, so bacterial fungal activity and all of that. And based on all of those results, we, we work with it with supplements and foliar sprays. We'll get there. It's just being a little bit tedious. I haven't done it for about three years now, but going back, we had what was called a um, soil biology assays done. They look at bacterial activity in the soil, fungal activity in the soil, mycorrhizal fungal activity, bacterial fungal ratios, because bacterial fungal ratios are, are quite different if you're growing tomatoes or growing olive trees. And so for, for fruit trees, the ratio should be predominantly in fungal favor, whereas for vegetables and stuff, it's more in bacterial favor. So we look at all that, and then we... Um, Based on the reports, get supplements, calcium, magnesium, silica, iron, zinc. We add it into the soil just with top dressing. So, yeah, the, the, the grove goes up the slope towards where you came down the hill and then this way. Yeah, it's a lot. Where we just were, I didn't have enough long eyesight to realize how deep this part actually goes. <laughs> As I said, we've got 180 trees. We've never done well here so far we've never had a, a great crop so every year i keep hoping that next year is going to be our first really good crop but so far it hasn't happened it's been a been a struggle i take care of another grove uh, about 20 minutes from here in opito bay and those trees are about 25 years old now there's a very strong biannual tendency with the olive trees one year a very good crop the next year a very poor crop uh, for example last year in the other grove i take care of we got about 450 kilograms of olives, and the year before, about 2,600 kilograms. Holy! Yeah, six Holy. times as much. So it's like that. But we've never picked more than 500 kg here, and we really should be getting 2,500 kg in a good year, 3,000 kg. It's, it's kind of south-facing, and so it, they might not be getting as much sunlight as they would like. But then it's the winterless north too, right? <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> so not, they say. But it's not the rainless north. <laughs> We've been getting a lot of rain. Yeah. Uh, and all the trees, of course, are a Mediterranean climate tree. So they, they can adjust to a degree to changing in environmental circumstances. But uh, we're very borderline up here, I think, for olive trees in northern New Zealand with the amount of rain. And obviously the climate's changing and we're getting more rain. So... That's not particularly helpful, but we'll see. We'll keep boxing on and see what happens. So what promoted you to get into this in the first place? Yeah, I often ask myself that question <laughs> 25 years later. I used to go to a, a country called Malta in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, I first visited there in 1989 when I was living in Hong Kong. Uh, I was, I was previously a, a medical doctor, and I was going to a conference in The Hague. There's the main islands called Malta, and then there's a sister island that's called Gozo, G-O-Z-O, which is only about 9 by 14 K, very small, with about 30,000 people. Anyways, I ended up buying a place there years ago. It was a 500-year-old collapsed farmhouse and started renovating it and then started going to Malta every year and um, discovered the olive trees. Many, many years ago, the, the Phoenicians brought olive trees to the island of Malta and Gozo, as they did around the whole of the Med, around 2500 BC, and started planting olive trees. In the early years, 
A.D., Malta was covered in olive trees. And then around 1000 A.D., the, another Arab group invaded Malta and the island of Gozo and destroyed a lot of the olive trees and all the olive presses to uh, control and ruin the economy. And so the number of olive trees was really decimated. And then the British discovered the island of Gozo and Malta, and they basically finished off what remaining olive trees there were to plant cotton. So there weren't many olive trees, but there were still some small groves and patches. I started reading about the olive tree and got totally taken with the history of it going back. to We first started using olives to feed ourselves probably about 7,000 BC, over 9,000 years ago, and, and that's documented from carbon dating of, of seeds and pits in Palestine, Israel, and Jordan with carbon dating. So it's a, it's a fascinating tree. It's been around a long time. It's the very first tree that we actually harvested a fruit from. Is it really? was the olive tree. Yep. The second was the fig tree, and the third was the pomegranate. So those were the first three fruit that uh, us humans started consuming. So it's got a, an incredibly long history. And then I, start, I just started reading more and more about it and really fell in love with the olive tree, unfortunately. And um, so it's become a, a passion and a hobby and a, a wonderful pursuit. It leads all over the place to people you meet and horticulture, agriculture, soil science, and all of those fascinating parameters. So uh, that's how I got into it. I started planting olive trees on the island of Gozo. If you would have Googled the island of Gozo, in the early 2000s, there was a green patch, one green patch on the island, and that was our olive grove. I think we had the largest grove on the island with 100 trees. But uh, one thing led to another, and we, we had ended up leaving Gozo. And um, I had lived in New Zealand back in the 80s and then left New Zealand. I had lived in Russell from 82 to 86, and so this was the area of New Zealand I was familiar with. And so we moved back here in 2011 and planted olive trees again. So I'm guessing when yeah. you were looking through the real estate options, a bit of area to plant some trees was top of the list. Yeah, so we wanted to have a, you know, a minimum of five acres and if possible a source of water. So this place has six and a half acres and we, we have a river uh, that emanates out of the Pukati Forest down at the bottom called the Kerry Kerry River, which goes into the Pacific Ocean at the Stone Store. And so we got a source of water. So it's a very small grove. It's only, a, as I said, 180 trees. It doesn't feel small, though, but maybe to you. When you're having to take care seen, of it and prune the trees, it doesn't feel small. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's like your own little slice of Malta or, or Gozo in, <laughs> in New Zealand. Peter takes me into the shed to show the utensils he uses to harvest. It's like a large comb with vibrating prongs which work to rattle the olives off the branch. He says other growers might use what's known as a shaker that wraps around the base of the tree, shaking the mature fruit until it falls off. But Peter says he will never use it, as he isn't after mature fruit. As the olives mature on the trees, the, the oil content goes up. So if you harvest it a little bit later, you get more oil. But the chemicals in olive oil that have significant health benefits are called polyphenols. Mm -hmm. And as the olives mature, the polyphenol levels go down. So if you wait, you get more oil, but less healthy oil. And what I'm trying to do is make the healthiest oil possible. <laughs> and so I harvest very early in an attempt to get higher polyphenol levels. 
Peter tells me there are well over 20 in the oil. However, the health benefits become significant once those polyphenol levels are over 250 milligrams a litre. Peter's oil is sitting between 400 and 500 milligrams. So, yeah, this is our press house, olive shed. It's a beautiful shed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is where we, we press the olives. Uh, to make olive oil with a high polyphenol content, one of the things you try to do is, as I mentioned, harvest it as early as feasible. And then another thing is to press the olives as quickly as possible after they're off the trees. Because the nanosecond the olives are off the olive trees, they start oxidizing. And the polyphenols are, one of their properties are antioxidants. And so when oxidation starts, the polyphenols in the oil are activated to counter oxidation, so they get used. And so if you wait 24, 36 hours until you press them after harvesting them already, the polyphenol levels will be going down a little bit. This is our press, so I try to get them in here within three or four hours of them coming off the tree and, and press them. Unfortunately, we can't get the polyphenol levels measured in New Zealand. There's not a lab in New Zealand that will measure polyphenol levels in olive oil, which is very frustrating. And so to get polyphenol levels accurately measured in the olive oil, you've got to send the oil off to Athens, Greece. Peter says after each harvest, he sends a sample of oil to the World Olive Centre for Health, located in Athens. There, the non-profit tests the oil and certifies the oil if a health claim is present. I'm actually the only person in New Zealand, or Australia, who has sent olive oil to Athens to get it properly analysed. No one else in Australia or New Zealand has. What's interesting on this certificate of analysis here is they say that, how do I say it, they've been related with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, cardioprotective and neuroprotective activity. Well, you've got good eyesight. <laughs> yeah, so um, what you just read consumes me. So my background is medicine, and so uh, one of the things of great interest to me is the health benefits of olive oil, which is why I'm trying to produce olive oil with the highest polyphenol content possible, because of the health benefits. And uh, in the last 15 years... Uh, there's one olive oil polyphenol in particular that's called oleocanthal, O-L-E-O-C-A-N-T-H-A-L. And oleocanthal has significant anti-inflammatory activity. In the world of medicine, that's pretty exciting because lots of diseases are related with chronic inflammation in the body. Everyone would think of arthritis, for example, but even coronary artery diseases to a significant extent a chronic inflammatory disease of the coronary arteries. And so... Uh, we have excellent medicines to counter inflammation in the body, anti-inflammatory drugs, but there's not one of them that doesn't have side effects. Whereas the polyphenol oleocanthal has significant anti-inflammatory activity with basically no side effects. It's now reached the point where the pharmaceutical industry has have the ability to capsulize. They can extract oleocanthal from olive oil and capsulize it into capsules. Is the benefit of... of incorporating olive oil into your food, whether it be by dressing or cooking or, you know, are we still able to ingest the benefits through yes, that way? Yes, absolutely. Or is it better to just take a teaspoon or a tablespoon of it every day? Well, for, for the health benefits, of course, to take a tablespoon or two tablespoons, <laughs> it depends what the polyphenol level is in the olive oil. So if you're taking olive oil that has a 
polyphenol levels of 1,200 milligrams per liter, two tablespoons a day will give you health benefits. You know, not much olive oil in New Zealand has a polyphenol level above 500 milligrams per liter. So. And with all the rain this year, are you fearing that it will be lower than the 425 last year? Well, it depends what's going to happen in the next in the, ha- summer, in the right. next half year in the summer. So with this so-called El Nino, we're supposed to be getting less rain this coming summer. So if that pans out, and our polyphenol levels should go back up again. But interestingly, oil, if the polyphenol levels are, are quite high, oleocanthal, the one with the anti-inflammatory activity, if the polyphenol level is quite high, it will burn the back of your throat as you swallow it. You want to try? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it has a, a peppery characteristic to it. As long as you don't ruin my radio voice. Try <laughs> <laughs> not to. Try this. You're going to notice a peppery sensation in the back of your throat 30 seconds after swallowing it. Okay. I can feel something happening. Is it burning the back of your throat a it's, little bit? Yeah, yeah, it's really bizarre, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's so delayed, you think. Yeah, it's delayed. Oh, that's so weird. So that pepperiness is from the oleocanthal. Yeah, so some At least you know you've got it in there then. Yeah, hey, great. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to send it to Athens. you just <laughs> got to try it. <laughs> yeah. Peter Crowlinston there of Puketi Olive Grove. You can find their oil online or pop into their grove if you're in Kirikiri. Hi, I'm Mike King from Pawariki Honey. And I'm Kate King. And you'll listen to Country Life. On RNZ National. Now we're heading to Arofenua Station, just west of Temuka in South Canterbury. The property is home to remnants of a podocarp forest, which was damaged in a severe northwesterly gale nearly 50 years ago. That's when Fraser Ross came in. The Timaru pharmacist and long-time Forest and Bird member began his quest to restore Arofenua bush, and since then he's planted thousands of seedlings. When Cosmo Kentish Barnes turned up, Fraser was sitting in a deck chair in the paddock beside the bush, gazing at the overhanging vegetation. Cosmo asked him how the restoration project came about. I knew as a Forest and Bird member the branch had been here before, and they recommended that it be restored. But it wasn't until the 1975 gale that brought down a lot of trees, a lot of big trees, that um, I contacted the owner and he asked me out, Ray Lyons, and I've got to pay a tribute to Ray Lyon and the present owner, Stu Bowman. Who's here today? Who is here today for allowing me to come here and... Um, carry on restoring the bush but um, I saw that bush after the gale and it was just a, a battlefield of fallen trees. The large area of regenerating bush is fenced off now but to get to it one must pass through a couple of paddocks owned by sheep and beef farmer Stu Bowman who is full of praise for Fraser. The Arafinawa bush wouldn't be here unless Fraser put in decades and decades of work and and, um, we're just fortunate enough to be, I suppose, part of its story. How much land does it take up? Yeah, it's about 10 hectares here. I mean, there's an intensified part of the bit in the middle, obviously, and now they've got it to a stage where 
it pretty much regenerates and they've got a lot of different species going really well in there and I'd imagine over time we'll just keep shifting this fence back and um, you can see even now with the plantings that Fraser's coming outside the fence line and, and mm. they're planting back towards and that's the ultimate goal is you know, to have it the way it was 200 years ago, mm. 300 years ago, however long ago. Yeah. How long have you been farming here? Yeah, it's been 11 years now I suppose and um, we came up from down south, we bought the wee block on, at auction here and yeah, Fraser was one of the first people we met actually after we bought the place and he um, came and introduced himself to us and let us know what he'd been doing here and um, I think he was pretty nervous actually to be honest, he didn't quite know what was going to be happening here because obviously at that stage the bush was part of the farm and he wanted to, to know that you know, it was going to be in good hands and there was no harm was going to come to it and yeah. we were certainly in the same thoughts as him. So did you sell the land that the uh, bush sits on to Forest and Bird. Yes. How did that work? Well, we got a we got a phone call from a bloke who wanted to buy it back then, and we were sort of reluctant. And so we talked to Fraser about it, and he said there's another way. And clearly, we weren't going to put the this ground under anyone else's control apart from Fraser. I mean, imagine. Fraser, at that stage, he would have been working here for four decades, and then we come in and rip the carpet out from under his feet. I mean, that, that, that's just not the right thing, and, yeah. and we were, no way we were going to do that. So it was always going to be go somewhere where Fraser still had the say about how it goes. I mean, we'll need to support that. How special is this area of native bush for you and your family? Yeah, for us and our family, it's, it's more Fraser's story than anything. It really touched us here. A guy can put in that much work over that amount of time and for no real personal gain to himself or financial gain for himself and, and you just don't see that anymore and I really admire that in him and not to mention he's a great fellow too. Yeah, we had to learn a lot on the way. I was told initially I'd never get trees to grow here because of the damage caused by rabbits and hares and that proved to be the case but you just don't walk away. You find a solution to that and we found a solution by protecting each individual tree. And we we're f- one of the first to use tree guards around individual trees. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've got some people who help you. Oh, yes. I've had lots of people, lots of forest and bird members. Yeah, and they've come from all over South Canterbury. Waimati members were particularly supportive used to have a nine or ten of those come up regularly mm. and um, they would help on a Saturday doing planting. Yeah. And that planting started nearly 50 years ago. Well, yeah. First thing I did was just collect seed then propagated them at home and um, I must have had beginner's luck because those trees just grew. You must have spent so much time here. Yes, I did count up about five years ago. It was about 800 visits here. What does it feel like seeing it now, after all the work you've put in? It's amazing, really. Yeah, just the transformation. And we've got photos taken over the years of the stages of growth. And that used to be an open area. Now it's completely closed in, mm. and um, there's special trees there. There is a lancewood just there. You can't see the top of it from here, but it was down to one tree when I first came. It was a badly shaped and fallen tree. So um, I 
managed to clear that and um, it started to grow and um, Ariel layered it onto the branches and they rooted and I've got two of those rooted cuttings that are now growing along the bush there. So that's one, but there's lots of other species that have been rescued from one or two. Have you always had an interest in conservation and plants? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. We lived on a farm and we had natural streams or streams running through our place and I used to admire those with the wildlife and fish life and plant life that grew along those. Local forest and bird branch member Innes Steger has spent countless hours helping secure Arofenua bush for future generations. We are on the true left of the Opahi River on the adjacent to the stop bank and Arofenua bush is the only remnant lowland forest in South Canterbury. The only other one in Canterbury is uh, Rickerton bush and obviously it's changed quite a bit since the storm has raged through in 75 and Fraser will take you through and show you some of the remnant trees and so I think the crucial thing here is that all the plants that are here have been propagated from the source so there's not, nothing from another area that's been introduced which is quite special. Yeah, everything here is eco-sourced, it comes from this area or within 5k of this area. That was the recommendation that we got from Forest and Bird when we first started, and they put that out in 1976. Mm. And I've followed that strictly since. It's kept the purity of this bush the same as it's evolved through generations. Ines, have you done some working bees here? Initially we did. I guess I've been more involved in securing the property over the years, um, making applications mm. and so on. So, Do you mean organising the purchase of this land from the Bowmans? Yeah. Mm. It's a bit of a long story how we arrived at this point, but we originally applied to the Nature Heritage Fund and they were very supportive and at the time they didn't have any funding because the funding was put aside for some other projects in the country. So then they had some funding available and they negotiated with the Bowmans and that fell through and then the Bowmans came back to us and said they would be interested if Forest and Bird would look at taking on the responsibility of looking after the bush in the future. And I guess that meant you having to raise enough money to buy the land. Yeah, so we've been very um, lucky in having very generous people that put up a lot of money and a lot of other people chipped in as well. So we managed to get most of it from the local area and Forest and Bird had some uh, a bequest that topped up the rest what we needed. Uh, fabulous. And when was that concluded. When did Forest and Bird get ownership? Uh, back in April this, this year. year. So yep. it's only just happened? Yep. Forest and Bird isn't actually into acquiring more land as such but the board of Forest and Bird felt because there's been so much input from members 
Fraser and other members that, you know, it's, it's a legacy. When we first came here, and we spent a lot of time clearing weeds such as hawthorn, and um, that took some time. And there's another, oh, there's several weeds like elderberry and old man's beard from the river. We've got a river bed here, and we get a fern too called male fern, which comes into the bush. And ash is excellent at spotting those and removing those, yeah. Ash Pierce is a retired farmer. How long have you been helping Fraser? Seven or eight years I've been helping Fraser and enjoying his company too, of course. There's mostly just been the two of us, so we get on very well together and I've learnt a lot off him and uh, do a lot of propagating and, and enjoy that. Mm. Fraser's 89 years old, but he's still got a lot of energy and drive. Yes, well, motivation too. And he's, he sees the enjoyment of all the work that he's put in over all these years. And he just doesn't want to let it go. It's part of Fraser. You know, he lives all on his own. He's so independent. Um, you've got to admire him. He's just a good man to sit down to and talk to. And he's great for keeping records. He, he just knows, knows so much and it's all in writing. A lot of handwriting. We are walking into Arofenua bush now and I can see Fraser up ahead. What is so special about this tree that you're, you're holding on to? This is a kahikatea. It was a seedling that came up under the mother tree, which I'll show you around another part of the bush and I transplanted it here about 40 years ago. And now it's developed into a, quite a fine specimen of kahikatea. We have come to a clearing where there are some younger trees. Yeah, this one has just been planted this year. This is a Lophomertus rohutu, it's one of the threatened plants that's subject to myrtle rust. And we've propagated carrick seed and we've planted them in this wetland. There's a wetland that goes through there. With, we've planted flax and carrots mm. and that. Mm. So yeah, these are developing into another wetland. trees here. These have been propagated and planted. So what's this tree here? Matai. Matai. It's a native podocarp. And um, it's come from a mother tree just round here. Yep. Now we have come to a big, strong tree. Tell me about this. This is a kahakatea again. When I came here first, early on, I used to wander through the bush looking for special plants. And um, one day I came to this tree here, which was covered in Muhlenbeckia vine. And there's just one little branch peeping out from under the vine. 
So um, we set to and cleared all the vine off and um, then it decided to fruit. And um, it was a female kahakatea, the mother tree that I spoke about before. And the following year was a wet year and there was lots of seedlings come up in there. Mm. And these are natural seedlings. There are dozens of seedlings of all different sizes all around us. We've taken a lot out from here, but I'm just going to leave those. Yeah, they're getting too big now to shift, and we've propagated a lot already. So, yeah. Mm. But this is on the Canterbury Plains, the dry Canterbury Plains, and we're now getting Kahikatea regeneration. It may be happening elsewhere on the plains, but this is... If you work with nature and protect it, yeah, yeah it, it, it does respond. What impact has your work here done on, on bird life? Well, certainly at times of year, mainly in the autumn and winter, fantails come here in, in quite big numbers, and we get bellbirds as well, and occasionally, not many, but we get bellbirds here. There was an early report by one of the surveyors back in the 1840s who said the bush was full of kaka and uh, pigeon. But we haven't had either now. Kaka have gone and pigeon have been seen in the vicinity but not here. Mm, perhaps uh, one day they will make it well, their home again. They should do because there's food here for them, yeah. Tim Exton turns up. He's from the Department of Conservation. I have two roles. I'm a community ranger. I deal with the community. And I've also got the predator-free 2050 role for the region. And you're here today at Arafanawa Bush because you were going to set some traps, but that's not going to happen after all. No, not today. Um, just due to Stu's worry about his pets. And so we're going to come back with um, some Doc 200, which are a box trap we use, and he's going to um, check them on a regular basis. So we'll achieve the same result. It just becomes more manual because we were going to use um, what is called the 8220 auto trap. Mm. How important is this work that Fraser has done here? Oh, anything like this is important. My attitude is we've got to create habitat for the birds, so that's why we do predator control, so bring the birds back. If we do predator control and bring the birds back, we've got to create the habitat. So what he's created here is a nice little island, and we will build out from this. It's, it's just fantastic. It's hard to believe this used to be a rather rough, um, overgrown paddock. Yeah, and we need more of this sort of stuff happening, <laughs> to tell the truth. And this is what I love. You know, this is community-driven. Uh, and without the community, we wouldn't get a lot of this stuff done because, you know, we, we do tend to deal with our conservation land. Here on the eastern South Island, it's 80% private land, so we need more of this sort of stuff happening to bring the bird life and even uh, invertebrates, our insects, are pretty special too. Now, as our listeners might be able to hear, sheep are grazing in the paddock on the other side of the bush and they must enjoy some of the shade in summer. They certainly do, yeah. They congregate under the trees out in the paddock there. Yeah, this is the outer fence here, but 
we've continued planting outside, but that's been a difficult task. Every tree must be protected securely out there with a stock. Yep. It's only sheep, but sheep learn to climb up netting and reach up and eat some of those trees. Yeah, they want those leaves. They do, yeah. But we've managed to get quite a lot of growth and new trees out there. There's a lovely dappled light here which the ferns are taking full advantage of. Quite a variety of ferns coming in now. And you see natural seedlings of that's um, kohuhu or matapo or yeah, potosporums. Now we're at a stump and in 1849 Charles Torless visited the bush and said it was full, well he estimated it to be 200 hectares or 500 acres and he said it was full of fine pine, totara and broadleaf and Unfortunately, broadleaf's gone and totara's gone. And this is a totara stump here. It hasn't been sawn, it's been chopped. Mm. You see the irregular shape of the cut? You can. Yeah, and that does prove that totara was here one time, but mm. it's not here now. What's your favourite tree? Well, kahakatea. Why is that? Just the shape and the beauty and... It's got a character of its own and a, it's one of our ancient trees go back to, I don't know whether it's Gondwana land or not, but it's an ancient tree. And it's probably been grown on the site for hundreds of thousands of years at this site, yeah. So this site is very special. Fraser Ross, who's 89 by the way, ending that story. Cosmo was also talking to Inez Steger, Ash Pierce, Stu Bowman and Tim Axton. There's a video of Fraser at Arofenua Bush filmed by RNZ's Nate McKinnon on our webpage. Just type Country Life RNZ into your Google browser and you'll find us. Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast. You can find it on any podcast platform. And our daily rural news is also available on podcast platforms. Yeah, do tune in. Thanks for joining us. Kakite ano. Kia pai tera. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.